Welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm your host, Justin Logan. Today on the podcast, a discussion of what to expect from Joe Biden's foreign policy with my colleagues at CSS, Gil Barndaller, a senior research fellow, and Jonathan Askinas, an assistant professor and a fellow at CSS. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Happy to join you. Thanks for having us. So we wanted to talk, start off by talking a little bit about the appointments uh, that were uh, announced on, appointments and nominations, I should say, that were announced November 24th. Um, and there was an interesting uh, uh, statement made by National Security Advisor uh, elect, I guess you would say, uh, Jake Sullivan. So Sullivan said that uh, President-elect Biden had, quote, tasked us with reimagining our national security for the unprecedented combination of crises we face at home and abroad, the pandemic, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, technological disruption, threats to democracy, racial injustice, and inequality in all forms. So I had a sort of visceral reaction to that idea. What do you guys think about reimagining national security to include things that traditionally have been thought of as outside of it? Well, it makes Bush's second inaugural look pretty tame, doesn't it? I mean, uh, defeating defeating terrorism is nothing compared to what these guys are shooting for. Yeah, I think it's I think it's incredible amount of hubris, and I think it's a uh, it's a recipe for making a host of um, wicked problems. To use the Pentagon or the defense parlance, so it's a host. Of, it's a way to make a, a host of wicked uh, problems. Um, you know, the the province of the Defense Department they have no business there. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's going to lead to if we're lucky, it's just kind of cheap rhetoric and, and, and a, a throw out to certain wing of the Democratic Party and certain chunk of Democratic voters that that uh, have that kind of understanding of national security or of what threats to the the Commonwealth are. Um, if we're not, they, they mean this stuff and then we're in for a, a long four years. And John, am I alone in hearing echoes of the old human security literature in this uh, rhetoric? No, no, I don't think you're alone, although I will say it's... it's um... I wouldn't know if I'd say more focused, but there, there is a, there is does seem to be a feeling that we have balanced national security concerns. Um, you know, they would probably say over the last four years, but I, I think it's a longer term trend, uh, too far towards uh, military objectives. So I guess there is a, if I want to be the optimist here, there is a good way and a bad way that this could play out. The bad way and the more likely way, to be honest, is as Gil suggested, as um, the, you know, the military is by far the most trusted institution in America. So the, so the temptation is to overload it with additional tasks that are politically palatable uh, in order to, to get them accomplished and to build legitimacy with the American people. So if we're larding up um, the Defense Department with more and more resources designed to address pandemics and inequality and technological change, et cetera, then we're only going to contribute to the phenomena that Rosa Brooks has identified as uh, war becoming everything. There, there is an, op if I can be optimistic, Biden's foreign policy team is much more freighted towards state and traditional diplomacy, certainly than the Trump team was, and arguably even than uh, the Obama team was. So the, the optimistic view would be that this is Jake Sullivan, this is the new administration um, setting the pace, that we are going to rebalance at the level of our institutions away from a militarized foreign policy. In other words, 
there are threats to the United States that do not emerge from bad bad guys and terrorists and near peer competitors or great powers or whatever. And if we only conceptualize threat or a strategic problem in terms of a military problem, then we're going to have what we've had, which is a, a, a failed foreign policy and an unbalanced foreign policy that's destructive of our republic. So this is a way of, of trimming our sails and saying we're going to reinvest in diplomacy. We're going to reinvest away from the military and towards solving some of these real problems at home that form the long-term sources of national strength or vitality, as George Kennan would have put it, then that would be a good thing. But we'll probably get the bad one, because that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I guess the optimistic reading could also be that the national security threats as traditionally construed aren't that bad, but we do have, um, you know, some rioting and, and, and people of different political factions in the country shooting each other in the streets of the country. And that may not be national security in quotation marks, but it's important. And people in this country are killing each other. And, you know, more Americans die from being murdered each year than are killed by terror. You know, I mean, I think there is a different reading of that. And I think, you know, somebody at the presidential level or vice presidential level saying that, you know, may read differently than somebody who is, you know, if we start hearing people at the Pentagon talking about this, I think that would be time to start really ringing the alarm. Um, on this stuff. I, I wanted to also mention this vignette that um, Anthony Blinken told about his late stepfather, who was a Holocaust survivor. And it was really, I, I thought like a really literate and, 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 and touching um, vignette. So he says his late stepfather, Samuel Pissar, was one of 900 children in his school, but the only one to survive the Holocaust after four years in concentration camps. At the end of the war, he made a break from a death march into the woods in Bavaria. From his hiding place, he heard a deep rumbling sound. It was a tank, but instead of the iron cross, he looked, he saw, he saw painted on its side a five-pointed white star. He ran to the tank, the hatch opened, an African-American GI looked down at him. He got down on his knees and said the only three words that he knew in English that his mother had taught him before the war, God bless America. And I, I thought, man, you know, if you, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, you know, that's, that's a really just immensely touching story. But the next words out of his mouth were, that's who we are. And I think that if you have those immensely moving symbols and, and, and emblems in the front of your mind, when you think about the apparatus of government that you're directing, it can cause you, uh, and, and he says, you know, we can't be hubristic and we have to work with our partners, et cetera, et cetera. But that very touching personal uh, uh, recollection followed by that's who we are. If that's who we are, we should do more of it. You know, like, uh, it was good. And we came out of the war immensely powerful. And, you know, the Nazi party was destroyed, you know. And so it, it was something that a lot of people were commenting on. Wow, that's a really moving and, and, and powerful vignette. And I thought, I, I, you know, maybe this is just the it, it, incorrigible uh, life of the realist. I worry about that. Uh, moving vignette. Yeah, that, um, that makes, so anyway, that makes me extremely pessimistic about Blinken. I mean, I think we know we know a lot about him from from that, as you said, from that vignette, right? Uh, and this is a guy, and I've written this. I think plenty of other people have too. This is a guy who fails what I feel like is one of the easiest kind of uh, current tests at hand, which is the Syria test. I mean, he's already said keep U.S. troops in Syria. You know, I, I don't know that he necessarily said to expand that that footprint. Uh, he was more 
hawkish and more interventionist on Syria when he was in the Obama administration, you know, you know, believed in, in arming the rebels and, and trying to overthrow Assad, which I, I think certainly any any realist worth his salt is, is going to view as, an, as a failed policy, if not a, a, a disastrous one and a criminal one in some ways in terms of what it did to to exacerbate and lengthen the, uh, the Syrian civil war. So you hear that, and as you said, it's, it makes makes for great press. It's a touching story. It, uh, it tells you something about uh, the guy's life in a way, even though it's his, his father's life he's, he's reflecting on. But you put that down there and you think of that as a guiding uh, principle of, of statecraft and, and where uh, he's going to take that. It makes one extremely pessimistic about any any idea of the Biden team as being sort of a chastened Obama foreign policy team. Yeah. Well, let's move on to talking about the donkeys in the room or the donkeys that aren't in the room. Um, there's been a, a tremendous amount of rumint around the on-again, off-again nomination of Michelle Flournoy uh, to be Secretary of Defense. And I have my own uh, the, the rumint, my own rumint, but maybe you have yours as well. And then, of course, DCI, right? Um, the head of the CIA, Mike Morell, has been uh, bandied about. Do you guys have Jay Johnson? Obviously, also has been discussed for uh, defense. Do you guys have any uh, rumor that you care to share to share or thoughts on any of those uh, candidates? Yeah, one, one name you heard in the in the in, a, in the DNI discussion. I don't think he'd be discussed for CIA, but um, but Angus King kind of got a little bit of a hearing there. Of course, Avril Haines was always kind of the front runner and had been. Uh, had been sitting there in the background and everyone had kind of expected her to be in one of these senior intelligence roles. Um, but Morel is the only name that's, that's, that's popping up regularly as of the last couple of days. But he, it'll be interesting to see, I think, on both of these actually, kind of a connecting thread here. It'll be interesting to see how much uh, progressives want to try to exert themselves and, and want to go into the paint here against uh, against Biden's preferences in the early going. Uh, it's, it's notable that Blinken got, got a, a pretty... Uh, Kid, kid gloves is one way of putting it, or got, got kind of almost a rapturous applause from progressives who would not be inclined to certainly support his track record uh, when he was in the Obama administration. You, know, you had the, the Matt Dusses of the world and, and some of the other prominent progressive foreign policy folks come out supporting him, talk about how, uh, you know, his, his empathy and how easy he was to converse with. And, and a lot of it seemed more, obviously, more relational than policy. But uh, he got he got plenty of applause from the, the real left of the Democratic Party in the foreign policy camps, whereas Flournoy, the, the, the word is supposedly that they've made a push against her and have tried to draw a line in the sand and have, have tried to get Biden to, to find somebody less objectionable and less intimately tied to uh, tied to the military industrial complex, you know, given her uh, role with Alan Hamilton, given her role with West Exec Advisors. Of course, Blinken was a co-founder there. And so there, there are other folks, you know, with, with a case to make that's that's hypocritical. But it's interesting that that um, that Haynes also no real pushback, although you know she's uh, she kind of kicks the eye towards under the rug for for lack of a better way of putting it, um, and and certainly involved in the drone war. Though the argument is that she lessened drone strikes, but it may be that Morell and uh, Flournoy become kind of a hill to die on for progressive foreign policy folks if they're if they're willing to pick fights this early in the game and counter arguments this is that this is the time to do it when important decisions personnel wise are being made i think it's very unlikely i think it's very unlikely that um the progressives will uh push back on flournoy simply because i think any other credible any other 
credible and likely candidate for Secretary of Defense is going to have almost all the same problems in terms of military industrial ties. Um, and uh, she otherwise, you know, for someone in the, the defense space, she's otherwise kind of burnished her her Democratic Party and, and progressive credentials. Um, so I think for symbolic reasons, I think Morrell would be a much easier pushback. Um, yeah, agreed. The question is, and this, this so often gets left out, right, is that the, the, the progressive left was not elected president in the United States. Justice Democrats was not elected president of the United States. Uh, the squad doesn't have uh, any uh, say in Senate confirmation hearings. And so the extent to which, um, especially on foreign policies, the extent to which the left is being considered at all by the Biden campaign, I consider, I think is quite minimal, the transition team quite minimal. Um, and, but Morello will be an interesting test case for that. Or, or the DCI will be an interesting test case because almost, almost all the front runners are seriously problematic if you're concerned about uh, the CIA's torture and drone strike record. Um, but my, my, my bet is that Biden will pick who he wants to pick and there'll be plenty of hand wringing and consternation on the left and it won't matter at all. Yeah. And the other thing you hear uh, in line with what you're saying is that this isn't necessarily an example, you know, a few real kind of Twitter threads aside of, of progressives trying to really put in a roadblock or take scalps. Uh, it may just be that, that Florida had a bad interview with Biden, that they were never especially close, certainly nowhere near the universe of, of how close he is to Blinken or even even Sullivan. Uh, and she just had a bad interview and he's willing to consider other candidates more seriously as a result. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And yeah, if Flournoy is not chosen, it will not be because of her lack of progressive bona fides, period. Um, yeah, it will be and, much and more. And as you said, the alternatives, Jay Johnson's on the on the board of Lockheed Martin. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, they may not be quite as, as mobbed up as she is with defense companies and with you know, the, the kind of uh, access industrial complex, but it's not going to be not going to be night and day. Whoever else gets gets put in that conversation with any seriousness. That's right. That's right. And um, uh, the, the other thing that's gone relatively uncommented on, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of a Biden 3.0, and, and there is definitely a feeling of uh, 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 Obama third term. But there's also a lot of people from Biden world here, which is which is normal, right? Uh, that the that the folks who end up with the plum positions are the people with particular ties uh, to the the president. Um, so I think that, that that is the primary deciding factor here. And there may also be a difference of policy. You know, I don't recall Biden talking a lot about defense policy on the campaign trail. It's not a big campaign issue in most places. And so I actually don't have a good sense of of what kind of fit there is between. Flournoy or Biden on policy. I will say at the level of personalities, the fact that Blinken was sec Secretary of State, the, no the nominee, is probably good for Flournoy. Clearly, they have they must have a good working relationship um, based on their cooperation when they were out of out of power with West Exec. So I think that, that bodes well for Flournoy. I mean, my understanding from talking to a variety of people, and I don't have a great level of detail, was that um, the Biden people did run into a buzzsaw uh, on Capitol Hill with respect to the Flournoy and that they were not expecting that. Um, so it could just be that you sort of pull back, make a tactical retreat, regroup and try and run it through again. Uh, I agree that the smart money would say that Flournoy gets it. Um, but it is interesting, right, that it was that it was missing. And you can float all sorts of theories about, oh, they want to signal that they're rebalancing. So they're going to do, you know, NSA and state. We're, we're prioritizing diplomacy and the defense stuff will come later. 
I don't know how much you want to credit that. Um, but my understanding was that, yeah, they met with more static on the Hill um, than they expected. If they do Morell, I mean, the progressive left ha- has to make a run at him. Um, the torture stuff is bad. Um, his response to the Senate torture report was total truculence and recasting history. But beyond that, I think it's immensely important to point out that in 2016, um, Mike Morell at the Center for American Progress uh, made these remarks, quote, ships leave Iran on a regular basis carrying arms to the Houthis in Yemen. I would have no problem from a policy perspective of having the U.S. Navy boarding their ships, and if there are weapons on them, to turn those ships around. So we can say what we want about, you know, the history of, of the CIA torture and Morell as a company man. Um, and you could say there's a DNI now, so the centrality of, of the DCI is less than it once was. But having a person with those substantive policy views uh, <laughs> at the top of the CIA, um, and as you know, you guys both know, there are a wide, wide, wide range of views within the CIA. Um, but the DCI is going to choose which of those get amplified and which are the desk officers for this and that. Um, and so that the morale thing worries me. I mean, I think Flournoy is, you know, a, a replacement level Democratic uh, uh, Secretary of Defense nominee. I mean, you're going to get somebody more or less like Flournoy one way or the other. Um, but you could put somebody at CIA that wasn't in 2016 talking about boarding Iranian vessels in international waters. Um, so anyway, I, I you know, th- that there's there's still some things there's to watch. To keep two other considerations here about these two particular appointments um, that relate to more to the politics and policy of it. So um, assuming we're serious about rebalancing towards you know, rebalancing towards China, rebalancing the military budget away from um, totally unsustainable levels of spending. You need a strong Secretary of Defense, particularly now at a point when we're probably at an idea of civil military relations, when the staff, the military staff has never had more, at least since MacArthur has not had more power and influence in what goes on inside the building. And um, so you, you need a you need a really steely Secretary of Defense. Um, Rumsfeld back in 2000, 2001, had a lot of problems, but he actually was on track based on his very, very long track record in the building, knowing where the bodies are buried, knowing the personalities. Um, his problem is that he was actually too powerful and too reformist, right? So actually, um, when uh, one of the issues in the Iraq war was he wanted to maintain his modernization agenda, and he actually succeeded in doing that despite massive change in geopolitical circumstances, right? Gates, um, never uh, was not able to, didn't really want to take a reformist stance. And none of, none, I mean, none of Trump's secretaries of defense um, have been in a position to either desire or have the ability to do that. I mean, watching Esper get chewed up by the staff was sort of hilarious. Um, I don't know. I don't know if Flournoy, well, I, I don't know who in the Democratic roster has what they has what they need to be able to achieve the level of reforms, including reforms on budget that could make some people very angry um, in, in the Pentagon. Ash right? Carter? Well, yeah, maybe just Ash Carter again. That'd be great. Um, on the DCI side, I think there's one element of this which is sort of missing, and I haven't really seen it discussed too much, which is 
um, how Republicans are feeling about CIA. You know, between the concerns among some of the Republican Party about politicization of CIA, as well as just the general ineffectiveness of CIA, especially in East Asia and especially towards China. You know, we're not even a decade out from their entire Chinese network getting burned based on bad human and, you know, human um, practices. Um, there may be a sense between these two factors that we want someone who's actually going to make some serious changes and therefore someone who's maybe an outsider. And of course, there's a long history of appointing non-company men as DCI or women um, in order to get things done, uh, especially reforms. So there might be a more appetite for reform coming from the Senate that could, along with the progressive distaste for morale, help shift things there. That's putting a tremendous amount of faith in the integrity of Republican politicians. <laughs> so color me skeptical about any uh, anybody really moving much in, in the intelligence side of the House. But maybe um, it, it would it would be interesting to see how much appetite there is for any real defense. I just, I find myself a lot more skeptical about the appetite for any real defense reform in the, in the Biden administration. I mean, again, well, we've got a guy with 45 year track record and, and, and has never done anything substantive. It's just such a fight. I mean, to, to, to make any, even let's, let's look at even just the, the process stuff, right? Never mind, never mind moving the, the ship of state in any real way in terms of policy. Um, but it's taking us, had an admiral tell me off the record recently, takes us twice as long, you know, life cycle or excuse me, acquisition cycle for any new weapon system compared to the Chinese. Uh, that's a serious problem, even if you're relatively dovish on, on, on China from a geopolitical perspective and everything else, uh, e even if you take that view, which I don't, but uh, that's a real problem. So whenever you hear anything about the Pentagon, it's, it's, it's always at, at best tackling those kind of problems, as far as I can tell. Um, I'm trying to think of the last guy that came in with real, I mean, Mattis, Mattis was reputed, came in with that kind of head of steam to try to try to change the place and almost seemed to get swallowed up. Granted, he was putting out forest fires every 48 hours by the sound of it. But after he left, I just, I don't even know who the contenders would be to do something like that. Well, I think, Gil, you know, I think you hit the heart of the problem, which is that from the rhetoric, both things, you know, a president like Biden has said and some of his team. Jake Sullivan in the, in, the, in the announcement, there's a huge amount of rhetoric about change from reform and necessary, you know, some of which are, are I think, from a totally nonpartisan standpoint, 100% necessary, right? The, the acquisition cycle problem is not a partisan issue. So you have, a, you have a lot of rhetoric about reform. None of the people that have been selected so far or are on the roster for being selected, none of them are reformers. None of them have credentials or backgrounds or experience in undergoing serious reforms. None of them have a reputation for the ability to do that. They are all career insiders, which is not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a problem in terms of, oh, you know, we need to drain the swamp. But if you want to get things done, if you need to make serious changes, this is not the roster of people that you would select. And so I think there's a tension between Biden's desire to signal that, you know, the adults are back in charge with the ability to execute on the very serious reforms that he's rightly said are needed. I would just draw this section of the discussion to a close by saying it's Mansur Olson's world and we're just living in it. Um, and on that note of failed reforms and failed uh, policy shifts, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was can uh, Biden administration end any of the forever wars, if we're going to call them that. And if he can, will he do so? 
I think, you know, it's, you know, his old boss, Barack Obama, uh, pointed out in 2014 that it's easier for a president to start a war than to end a war. Um, and he got pretty close. He did, you know, 140 something thousand down to about 5,000 in Iraq. That's, that's a lot. Um, what are the hopes for winding down? Pick one, Syria, Yemen, drone campaign, Afghanistan. Um, can we make any progress here? I would say I would contrast one one quick thing, and not to not to be pedantic, but I would contrast uh, can and will. The can part is is actually pretty easy, and I'll, I'll do a self plug. I've got a piece going up with Quincy's blog, uh, responsible statecraft next week, looking at the the can of Afghanistan withdrawal and getting people out, especially some of these small footprint things, be it Somalia, be it uh, be it Syria, be it Afghanistan, even is a, is a logistically a pretty easy pull. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm quibbling and, and, and you met can in terms of domestic opposition or just inertia and all that. Um, but in terms of, and that's sort of the, the whole point with Trump, right. For all of the, the end endless wars tweets and the applause line stuff, he could have done, he could have done this literally in a matter of weeks, could have had all, almost all leave aside the Gulf, but could have had all U S troops out of kind of active combat operations or, you know, whatever euphemism we're using for them in the greater middle East. He could literally have them home by Christmas now. He'd be pushing it for Afghanistan. But he could get everybody on a plane, burn what can't fly out and what's not super sensitive, and do that in a few weeks. Um, could be could be chasing Christmas. We call it Boxing Day. But uh, so that, that's the can. The can is there logistically. But but to, to, but uh, to kind of not quibble any further on that, I would be from what Biden says from his track record. I, I think he's going to, on the one hand, I hope contra kind of what we were talking at the beginning of the podcast. I think he's going to hopefully have a relatively limited uh, sort of counterterrorism goal with these campaigns and, and not be seeking societal transformation if, if uh, some of his subordinates don't uh, run away with themselves. But uh, there's no indication besides besides Yemen and maybe to a limited extent Afghanistan that he's reappraising any of these things or really seeking to totally draw down uh, a U.S. military presence in any of these countries or end any of these campaigns. He said in his foreign affairs essay, it's time to end U.S. support for the Saudi campaign right. in Yemen. That, that's the I big mean, one. It's, that's it's, the one that, that's the one <laughs> that you could see. Um, you could see a real a real shift, especially because I I think that the other thing with the Yemen campaign, if he if it's done artfully, he's doing them a favor. I mean, the Saudis Saudis have have uh, <laughs> had a horrific war to put to put no fine point on it. I mean, never mind. You know, their own casualties are kind of. No one has good numbers on that, and it's it's mostly poor Sudanese and fake Sudanese Chadian guys dying with rifles out there of the Saudis. But end of the day, they've been utterly humiliated. That military, which everybody kind of knew, but has been completely exposed as a, as a parade ground force that that is, that is incapable in combat, uh, that can't even protect them from a, from a impoverished, smaller country on their border. Their missiles being lobbed into Saudi Arabia. There's an explosion in Jeddah a couple of days ago. You know that the uh, the vulnerabilities of the Saudis in a hard power sense are, are, you know, triple underscored as a result of this campaign. And they're also spending, I think the last numbers I saw, maybe it shifted a little, but give or take $4 billion a month, which is actually kind of in a funny way parallels about what we're spending in Afghanistan. But they're running up, uh, you know, call it 40 to $50 billion a year in war expenses there. Their, their budget's imploding, partially because of that, partially because of just general largesse, and partially because of the, uh, if not the end, at least the, the site of the end of the oil era, right? So if it was done well, Biden could actually pull U.S. support, play a tap dance with them uh, and, and give the Saudis, do the Saudis a favor in helping them 
uh, find the exit that I think they are really increasingly desperately looking for. Yeah, on Afghanistan, I think I don't know whether he'll he'll he's expressing desire in any net forever war. That said, the um, there's been a lot of pushback from the kind of establishment, uh, foreign policy establishment about the, any of the potential Taliban deals. I mean, you were on a discussion yesterday, uh, Kill, where uh, someone speaking basically for the the blob was suggesting that a three to five year timeline for a deal might be more realistic. I, I think that there's a delusion here, which is that the Afghanistan con uh, conflict is in equilibrium. That we, we have with a certain level of American forces that are plussing up the Afghan the national the, the Afghanistan's government, um, and we're kind of imbalancing the Taliban. And as we draw down, they grow more powerful. If it becomes an issue, we just push back a little bit, and things go back in the other direction. And this can go on indefinitely until there's a deal. I think that's actually deeply flawed. Um, every every year, the American force presence in Afghanistan, with only a few exceptions, right, gets weaker, I think, in ways that are hard to observe. Just more wear and tear on facilities, maintenance, vehicles, less ability, uh, greater difficulty in actually, um, or, you know, greater cost to maintaining the presence there. And every year the Taliban are getting better. Right? I, I spoke to a soldier who was just um, uh, in Afghanistan and observing some of what's going on there, and he commented on how improved Taliban marksmanship has become in the last five years, right? The Taliban are getting new weapons and getting new uh, sites uh, from China, right? You know, they're, they're a stone's throw away from the China's uh, uh, western border. Um, they're training in them. They're becoming more proficient. Um, and the government of Afghanistan is continuing to, to weaken and fracture. And so the, the danger that we run is um, that I think we're in danger of, of strategic surprise in Afghanistan. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, maybe, maybe, too, maybe speaking too strongly, but I'm, I'm, look, I'm not saying there's going to be this massive Taliban. I'm not saying we'll look at the Tet Offensive or anything, but I think this notion that we can just like maintain this frozen conflict in Afghanistan at the levels of forces that we're currently using is flawed. Yeah, let me let me push back against that a little bit, uh, leaving aside the, the issue of Chinese sites, of which if they're anything like what pops up on Gunbroker, the, the green red dots, those guys are getting taken for a ride. But uh, that that aside, I think that the I think one thing I would just say, I think you're right to an extent. I think certainly the Taliban are, are I guess I'd phrase it as almost kind of slowly ascendant, that it's it's not an equilibrium, that they're they're absolutely making gains. Um but I would say that the thing that's propping up the Afghan security forces increasingly, uh, and we're in a little bit of a weird COVID kind of skews this in, in a way, but is is money and air power. I think the air power piece uh, can't be ignored. I mean, the, the Taliban are, are increasingly confident and, and tactically, um, it's not even that they're taking risks, is that they're able to mass in numbers that they weren't able to do when there was a, a larger U.S. footprint. So, you know, you had you had supposedly 3,500 guys, a brigade uh you know, sweeping through Kandahar province not very long ago. Uh, but again, that kind of stuff gets broken up by U.S. air power. So, and as long as the salaries are paid, you're going to have ghost soldiers, you're going to have corruption, you're going to have a, a pretty much a checkpoint army in a lot of ways, but you're going to have a, a certain level of uh, Afghan security force um, just mass as long as, they're, as long as they're getting paid, right? So I'm with you in a sense, but I'm a little less concerned about uh, the Afghan security forces fracturing under pressure if those two realities remain. I think I think the, the, the kind of uh, unstated part is that the U.S. presence, the, the, the combat advising uh, and, and 
sort of security force systems presence there is increasingly, both increasingly minimal and increasingly irrelevant. Um, it's a good little gem in the, the latest SIGAR report, you know, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, who might be the, the last honest man in Washington. But <laughs> his latest quarterly report, which is only, uh, gosh, not even a month old, had a great little nugget in there that the, um, they use a new, another, you know, another new acronym, of course, but the, essentially the strike forces, the police and military strike forces that are doing all of the offensive operations. Again, the, the, Af- the, the great bulk of the Afghan National Army and the, the police are, are holding down checkpoints and are a, a defensive orient, defensively oriented force to say nothing of the militias that are getting now rebranded as territorial forces that were the Afghan local police and all this. So these strike forces that are doing raids that are, that are at, at the very high level kind of aping uh, American special operations forces and doing kind of helicopter born, uh, you know, night assaults and then stuff down, down from there. Those, uh, those forces were 96% unpartnered in the last quarter which is almost quintuple what they were five, what they were a year ago. Uh, part of that, and so that's driven really by two things, by COVID restrictions on, on U.S. troops and by the, the uh, U.S. Taliban deal. So they're still maintaining a, a tempo uh, that, that, that one real arm that does the offensive work is, is still doing all their work on partner. So the, the U.S. troop presence, I think, is, is even more relevant than it, than it was uh, as a result of some pretty recent factors. So kind of a long way coming around. I think that the... I think if we want it, we can have it. It may be pretty cynical, depending on what you think the overall trajectory is. Uh, and, and you and I probably mostly agree on that. But we can have a, a Kissing, you know, Kissingerian decent interval uh, by di- if we're willing to keep U.S. air power and keep U.S. money in that country a fair bit longer than the you know the last uh, the last boot on the ground, if you will. And so, moving on to the ultimate uh, question, as we send. Uh, the 45th president out on an ice flow. Um, was Donald Trump good for realism and restraint? You guys both know that there has been an argument inside and certainly outside. There's been a real effort to sort of, uh, for people who oppose the our program, if I can call it that, to say, this is your guy, this is your brand. And I think in a cynical way, they had a suspicion that he was going to uh, go down in flames and that uh, the realism and restraint project should go down with him. But within the realism and restraint world, um, people have made the point. Donald Trump started no major new wars uh, and was the first president in umpteen years to not do that. Um, he didn't end any wars either. He ramped up the drone campaign dramatically. Um, Saudi, etc., Saudi and Yemen, etc., what do you guys think, with the benefit of whatever two weeks now of hindsight, um, and assuming there's no <laughs> December surprise uh, that pops up one way or the other, um, was Trump good for restraint? I I think I, you know, part of me doesn't want to admit it, but I think on balance he sort of was for for largely domestic political reasons. Assuming we get through this pretty uh, volatile, I don't know if it's burn things down. But this, uh, this interesting, particularly interesting lame duck period for the next, uh, next couple of months, assuming we get through that relatively unscathed and we don't, uh, you know, strike the Iranians on our way out the door or something like that, uh, or this administration doesn't, I think we get through that. I think that the, um, the, le- the legacy in terms of rhetoric, not in terms of reality and in terms of what's been a fairly conventional, uh, and sometimes far more destructive Republican foreign policy, uh, administration, Say nothing of the of the personnel and the and the turbulence and 
especially the kind of folks that come through the door as national security advisor. And, and I think it always bears mentioning the near misses totally self-created with, uh, with North Korea and Iran that we, that we came, I think, very close to a crisis with both of those guys. I mean, Iran in particular, um, we were, you know, uh, fingers sitting on the trigger there for, for a couple of periods, uh, and may still be, but leaving all, leaving all that aside, I think what Trump did in terms of opening the Overton window, in terms of changing the domestic terms of debate within the Republican party, to a lesser extent, you know, some of that reflected in the Democrats, but really within his party is, is important and is potentially depending on how things play out and what that struggle within the GOP leading up to 2024 is how that goes. It's not a small thing that even the Tom Cottons of the world are, are, are aping the ending endless war trope, right? Um, you know, talk is cheap, and, and, and Trump proved that 365 days a year. But I think that that shift that people, people in the GOP now realize, and, and maybe the Democrats have their own kind of pathologies about the use of the military and about the, the need to appear tough and some weird kind of almost hangovers from the Reagan era uh, that still persist, partially because the party's run by, you know, 80-year-olds. But within the GOP anyway, I think that the, the fight uh, over for Trump's mantle and for, for kind of trying to keep that, that odd Trump coalition that did at the end of the day win a presidential election, um, I think that's going to be interesting. And I think there's the, you're going to have your Nikki Haley's and your, and your folks that, are, that can't even kind of fake the talk. Um, but there are plenty of people that whether they're genuine or not, and, and, uh, and it'd be interesting to see who's around them as well in terms of advisors, and that's always a struggle. But there, the fact that I think people in the GOP, prominent political, prominent national leaders and potential presidential candidates realize that a plurality, if not a majority of their, of their base, wants an end to, to foreign military entanglements that are send Amer sending Americans home in body bags. I think that's, a, I think that's an important turning point. I think that's, that's not nothing. Has Tom Cotton said he wants to end end? Tom Cotton wars? has used that line at least once. I mean, very, very recently. Wow. I think this was September when somebody flagged it up for me. Uh, you know, again, that that is the the most cynical of lip service that, that anyone's ever seen. But no, but cynical lip service is more than we're used ex to. Getting, exactly. So. <laughs> I think that I think there's an, there's potentially, and I think it's early, and I think all the the realignment talk on the right, everybody should you know take a a, a nice long drink of water with that. But that being said. Uh, it's not nothing. And I think, I think that's, we're going to find out in the, in the next few years, it's partially to take us back to our beginning. It's partially going to be driven by what the Biden administration actually does in office. Uh, but they the, the Republican party and the Republican party leaders have seen that, that not only is there no cost, there's increasing benefit to being seen as the peace candidate. And that's, that's a pretty welcome thing, even just in spite of the very odd and contradictory vessel it came in. Yeah. A couple of, um, so I, I think I think realism and restraint have been doing better over the last four years, but I don't think that's due to Trump. And I think actually Trump was an impediment to that, right? Some of the, the leading thinkers on the realism and restraint camp had to spend political capital distancing themselves from Trump, basically. I mean, it's ascended for practical reasons because people are realizing we can't afford our foreign policy. It's ascended for ideological reasons that we shouldn't pursue this kind of foreign policy more than anything. It's ascended for generational reasons, that just the appetite for endless wars, the buying into this very boomery, mystical, um, uh, America is the essential power, uh, the indispensable nation sort of rhetoric is just declining um, as more millennials and Gen Xers are, are, are rising in foreign policy. And the, the generational shift is, I think, marked. Um, 
it, the Trump administration was a huge missed opportunity for realism and restraint in that you had a president who, at least on many issues, uh, both in terms of his rhetoric and his revealed preferences, preferred a realism and restraint approach, or at least um, uh, a more realpolitik version of American foreign policy, less ideological version of American foreign policy. But the most important thing he could have done to make a permanent change in American foreign policy based on his preferences would have been to nominate and, and get as much foreign policy experience tied to realism and restraint into the establishment, into the GOP as possible, right? We all know how this works, right? You, 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 you get people who share your vision, you appoint them, you know, not at the senior levels, but at the more junior levels, um, and they get credentials and bona fides from that. And then in the next GOP administration, they come in at a higher level, right? If you want a generational change in GOP foreign policy leading to a generational change in American foreign policy, that's what you needed to have done. But the, the, for four years, Trump, the Trump administration's policy process was so broken that that never, nothing like that ever happened, right? Beginning from in the transition in 2017, because they were so unprepared for it, you basically went to the Heritage Foundation and then asked them, you know, who would be good for foreign policy? And surprise, surprise, it's a bunch of, of you know, the most aggressive warmongers and hawks and, and delusional ideologues you could you could ask for. Um, so the, the hacks. And the hacks, yes, right. Cut the hacks. Um, so, so that was a huge missed opportunity for realism and restraint. I will say in, in the long-term sense, and this is a bit of a punt, I think it's going to depend a lot on what happens in the Biden administration. If the Biden administration manages, manages to steer the ship of, of state for four years with competence, you know, rebuilding, rebuilding international agreements, uh, you know, conducting sophisticated diplomatic foreign policy to contain China, et cetera, et cetera, in other words, if that kind of adults are back in the room, um, uh, impression that they're trying to create succeeds, then it will be a blow for the establishment. It'll be a blow for the blob, for business as usual in the U.S. I think there are a number of mines or hidden, uh, you know, hidden uh, gunpowder kegs or whatever that a Biden administration taking that approach could inadvertently stumble into, which would be really bad for the U.S. and bad for the world, but would possibly undergird the need for a shift towards realism and restraint, right? And if you look at some of the rhetoric, again, it hasn't been a focus of the campaign, but some of the past rhetoric around Syria, around Russia, Ukraine, um, there is a gap between reality and expectations here. I mean, even in Afghanistan, right? I mean, I'm happy to talk more about this with Gil, but... Um, the chance of the Taliban trying to press the issue after having learned American standard operating procedures and tactics and operational practices for the last 20 years is higher than the military thinks. Um, there is a chance that there is a disaster, whether caused by Biden's choices or not, in the next four years. And, and it could be a disaster. You know, this could be just as the, you know, Trump is sort of leaving the pandemic in Biden's lap, right? This could be the result of Trump's foreign policy decisions, right? This could be the result of pulling out of the JCPOA. Um, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And if Biden is blamed for them fairly or unfairly, then that could um, undergird the need for a shift towards realism and restraint. And, and one final thing, and I'll just briefly caveating off of that, uh, or hopping on that, it's going to be very easy for Republicans just to, just to, 
open the playbook, you know, and run student body left and, and go on Fox news or, or go on. If, if we're still talking about Newsmax getting a million viewers in six months and this, this uh, anti Fox thing has any legs, which I rather doubt, but it's going to be very easy for Republicans elected otherwise to go on their, their usual media uh, place, you know, venues and, and even shows go, go to the old favorites and, and roll back the clock and attack the Democrats for being weak and for apologizing for America and for withdrawing U.S. forces and leaving vacuums and not showing strength and all this, I think, which the three of us and, and I think maybe a, a lot of Americans would agree is empty, symbolic garbage um, and beltway obsessions. But it's, it's going to be awfully easy to default to that just because you've been singing that song for decades. So. You talk about structural factors. There's a there's a structural flip back built in there that, that may impede any any chance to bring a more realistic and humble foreign policy to the Republican Party. But as you said, I think a ton is going to depend on what what Biden actually does in office. On that sunny note, I'd like to thank John Askinus and Gil Barndoller for joining us on the podcast today. Guys, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Thanks. I'm Justin Logan. Thank you for tuning in. You can find Encounters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the CSS website, css.cua.edu. Thanks again, and we look forward to you tuning in next time.